Um, what a privilege to be here. We've been running through Ephesians. Uh, we're going to continue in Ephesians today. Our passage today is Ephesians. Oh, kids, did I do it again? Kids, you are dismissed. I wanted you to read this with me, but go ahead. You're dismissed. Now, if my, if my six-year-old Jed was here, he'd want to read it with me, okay? Because he can read. He told me so. Go ahead to Sunday school. It's there if you want to go. If I were you, I'd want to go too. In fact, I kind of do want to go. You know, they build beads and crafts, and they, I love the people that run this church. Um, we are uh, moved up in Ephesians 4, all the way to Ephesians 4, 25 through 32 is our section today. I'm going to go ahead and read the Word of God without comment, hopefully. Uh, 425, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Heavenly Father, as we enter this section of your word, the word of God, Help us to remember that you, God Almighty, wrote a book, and the book is binding. It's not an elective. Help us to look at your word, to understand your word, and to apply your word for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Every time I come up here, this is just John Johnson speaking now, I remind myself I'm surrounded by friends. Um, for those of you who are not public speakers, um, you understand that. It's, you're up here like in front of people, but you're also speaking the Word of God, and it's a serious thing. And as I went through this passage over and over again, um, it really hit me. If I drop dead this second, which would be a great thing for me, believe me. Um, what a way to go, huh? But remember this one thing, what we're going to learn today. You're here in the church, but is the church in you? You're here in the church, but is the church in you? And some of you will um, be with me and say, well, I, that, that's a challenging thought. Um, when we entered Ephesians 4, or excuse me, when we, when we entered chapters, chapter 4 of Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, we entered a section that can be called the process of putting on the new self. He tells us to put on the new self. And Ephesians 4 actually gives us a process in how that is done. And what's been emphasized many times throughout, the pre throughout this preaching series is that we do not put on the new self in order to be acceptable to God. Rather, because God has done everything necessary to make us acceptable in Him, chapters 1 through 3, we are then obligated to put on the new self, which is, in fact, who we actually are, our real self, in Christ. So this is not something that we should do to try to get his favor. Do you see the difference? Now, religion tells us to clean up our act so that God will accept us. Biblical Christianity says that God accepted us 
now we can begin to allow him to clean up our act in order to live consistently with who we really are, who our real person is. And it follows that the last verse in this section, 432, bookends or illustrates this very point. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, past tense. He's already done these things. And because he's done those things, now we should do some things as well. We should be tenderhearted and forgiven, forgiving because God has already done that for us. Okay, not rocket science, but profound anyway. So in chapter four, God gives us some practical steps or a process to help us put off the old self and to put on the new self. Now, in order to accurately understand today's passage, We're going to need to apply two Bible study methods, things you've heard before, principles, uh, context, and contextualization. You've heard them here before, so they're not new. Context and contextualization. Now, as to context, uh, chapter 4, 25 through 32, is not a standalone section. It follows on all the rest of chapter 4. It must be understood in its relationship to the overall teaching of the whole passage and, of course, to the whole book. So let's follow the flow of chapter 4 real quickly. I'm not going to re-preach it, don't worry. But let's follow the flow of chapter 4 where God tells us to take off the old self and to put off the new self. He starts in 4, chapter 1. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Sounds a lot like putting on a new self, doesn't it? He's telling us, that's what I want you to do. What does that look like? Well, he tells us in the following verse. Verse 2 and following, he says, uh, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's what the new self looks like, these really good things. But still knowing what the new self should look like is hardly the problem. The problem is, when I try to be humble and gentle and patient and tolerant and loving and a peacemaker, I habitually fall on my face. And that's the frustration of every person who genuinely, in their deepest self, who genuinely desires to please God. We end up getting in the way. This is my story. This is my song, right? Who knows the frustration? Who's been there? Okay, I'm not preaching in a vacuum here. God knows this, and God lays out his methodology for our sanctification, for our growth towards Christ-likeness. He tells us the method he's put in place so that we can actually put off the old self and put on the new. And what methods have you tried? If I were king, here's how it would go. I'd say, first of all, um, memorize long passages of Scripture, and um, isolate yourself from every evil influence, and uh, keep away from people so they can't see what a failure you really are. Wouldn't that be good? But that's not God's method. Now, here is God's method. He tells us at the beginning of chapter 4, Ephesians 4, 4, he says, there is one body. What do we call the body of believers? The church. His method is the church. God's method for your sanctification is the church. Yeah, you're in the church, but is the church in you? God uses the church as his means of helping individual believers put off the old self 
and put on the new. So consider, how have you, church, been actively involved with helping others put on the new self? What's your plan? What you been doing? And this should not be a new concept to those of us who have followed this series uh, in Ephesians. God introduces this concept early in the book. Uh, chapter 122, he says, He put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. And he goes on in 310, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. And 321, to him be the glory in the church. And as we will see six more times in chapter 5, in the church, just in case we miss it. Now, there's two primary objections to what I'm saying. I already know them, don't worry. I might be the one making the objections. The first is experiential. Hey, I've had a bad experience in the church. Hard to beef that one. I've been disappointed by, hurt by, rejected by, and angered by the church. I've been cheated, been mistreated, yeah, okay. Now understand, Satan has made it his life's mission to warp and corrupt every one of God's tools. We have a real spiritual enemy, and he is both relentless and brutal in his mission to destroy God's good creation. And this is why your marriages have been under attack. This is why the Bible is under attack. And even God's basic biological truths are under attack. This is what the Bible calls the schemes of the devil. And we should not be surprised. And we'll address those in chapter 6. It's such a big deal later on. So here's the thing. My personal experience does not nullify God's truth. God has established the church as his primary means of your sanctification. You're in church, but is the church in you? Let me stop for a second to get personal here. If, if you come from a, even a, a minor cultic background, you know how offensive this is. They're in your face. They're always in your life making you do things. It makes you want to shun this concept. If you're from a somewhat arrogant background, it's such a privilege to have you here. I know it is. <laughs> this is going to be offensive to you. I'm among you people, but you're not going to get into my life. That's a problem. Next objection is theological. What is the church? Is it a collective universal body of all believers? Or is it a local group that meets in a local building? Well, again, the context answers that question. Uh, 4.7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift, down to 4.11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as preachers, and some as teachers. Pastors, teachers. Where are you most likely to meet a pastor and a teacher in church. Hey, but I, I get a lot out of YouTube sermons. Uh, can't that be applied here? Wait till uh, verse 25 will address that. Okay, so what was showcased by Gunner early on in chapter 4 was these individuals who have been gifted to the church uh, are here. Uh, uh, 4.12, he says, for the equipping of the saint. Oh, why are they here? These pastors and teachers, they're here for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, 
until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see, God gives us pastors and teachers to equip us to help others put on the new self. It's not Gunner's job to help you put on your new self. It's his job to help us, to help others put, to put on the new self. It's his job to equip us, you and me, to do our job, which is the building up of the body of Christ. Our responsibility. Again, how are you, church, actively involved with helping others put on the new self? Is that your goal or mission when you walk into this building or when you decide to join a group? It wasn't mine originally. I heard they had free food. And they did. And I rejoiced. But this is the God-given method to help us put off the old self and to put on the new self. The people in the local church are meant to be invaluable in your sanctification process. You can't go it alone. It takes a family. That's God's method. Now, lest we become a church who brazenly hurts and wounds and disappoints and discards those who are on their journey towards Christ's likeness, God gives us as a group further instruction. Ephesians 4, 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects in him who is the head of even Christ. And here's where the danger of dropping the ball comes in. Hey, it is threatening to speak the truth to one another. This does not say speaking only the, tr- the lovely truths to one another. Rather, speak the truth in love. And most of us can see the danger presented here. Many of us in this church cannot even speak the truth to our own wives, let alone other church people. It's a threatening thing. It it might be messy. They might get mad at you. I don't like messy. I want peace. It's much easier to avoid responsibility and to just get along. Now, we're still is the potential, as I speak here, in empowering that, that one church member who may see it as their mission to correct the flock at all levels. You've met them, no doubt. Perhaps you've even been them. So two helpful verses here. First Timothy, uh, uh, you know, this 316. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The pro- this process, the process of sanctification, requires, no, demands teaching, reproof, correction, and training. Now we add to that uh, Hebrews 10.24, and let us consider, that means using your mind, think about, let us think about, let us really chew on, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembly, the church, which is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And here we see we need to consider how to best stimulate one another to love and good deeds while not forsaking the church. He tells us that. The act of correction, training, and reproof should be applied wisely and lovingly for a specific purpose of helping one another grow toward Christ-likeness. That's our mission. Now listen, we, 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 get, we have yet to enter page 6. We've yet to enter today's passage. This is all contextual background. This morning, it's not my intent to give you training on how we are to best get into each other's lives for the purpose of growing one another. Rather, I just want you to take note that it is the contextual thrust of this passage. That's what he's talking about in chapter 4. And it's ironic that no one takes issue with a football coach correcting their team toward victory. Or when warriors are training for battle. But speak of this in the church context, is, the context is quite intimidating. Yet, this is exactly what today's passage tells us to do. Now, last week, um, James ended uh, with uh, 424. He said, And put on the new self, which is which in the likeness of God has, recreate, has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. And with that in mind, we enter today's text, 425. He says, Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, in order to put on a new self, we need to speak truth one to another. And this is not an isolated verse in a text. Rather, this is part of the consistent flow of the entire context of the passage. This is talking about growth, our own spiritual growth. With that, I suggest here that laying aside all falsehood is primarily talking about laying aside words of flattery spoken in an effort to just get along with one another. That's laying aside falsehood here. Don't be a wimp. And I know I'm speaking dangerous here, but in the words of Alistair Begg, you're smart people, you'll figure out how to apply this. Now, we have applied the rule of context to this passage. Congratulations. You are good Bible students. But now we want to talk about contextualization. Still, in your Bible, in your Bible, the speak truth each one of you with his neighbor should either be capitalized or have a little footnote next to it pointing you to another verse. What, what verse does it point you to? Zechariah 8.16, right? Hey, how cool is that? Listen, when a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament passage, he is not simply trying to bolster his argument by giving you a cross-reference. See, even that guy agreed with me. That's not what he's doing. We do that, but that's not what he's doing. The Bible was not written with chapters and verses. Imagine finding your, your, your way around a Bible without chapters and verses. Find your way around a dictionary without alphabetical list. It's very difficult. The chapters and verses were not given until 1557, 1560. When New Testament authors quote a scripture, they are in essence saying, look at what that passage taught. They're using that verse to point you to a passage that people back then knew. 
And the issue is not what he's saying, but what is the passage teaching I'm pointing you to? That's what we call contextualization. The quote is a verse reference leading you to another passage. So the author is telling you, the reader here in Ephesians, to turn to Zechariah 8, and that's what we need to do. He says so. So turn, if you will, to Zechariah 8. Now, um, if you go to the New Testament and, and take a left and go backwards, um, Zechariah is one of the last books of the Bible. Zechariah. Not Zechariah, Zechariah. So Zechariah, what's the teaching of Zechariah? Not 8.16, that just points you to 8. What's the teaching of Zechariah 8? Oh, John, this might be tedious. Okay, that's fine. We'll get through it. I didn't come here to learn something. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Is it Donut Sunday or something at least? Okay. Zechariah 8. Let me, let me run you through the teaching. I'm not going to do a big deal on this. Uh, 8.1. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying... Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion, yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem we call the city of truth. The mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. At the outset of Zechariah 8, the holy God is declaring his intent to dwell with his people. Okay, we jumped down to verse uh, 7 in Zechariah 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Things are going to be great, Israel. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to restore everything. I'm going to restore your broken people. I'm going to restore your lives. And these verses, these are the verses which the Israelites clung to during the time of Christ when the Romans had conquered them. They kept saying, come God, come dwell with us. Come dwell, we can't wait. Come dwell with us. They looked forward to God's restoration of their nation and the blessing of God declares that he will restore his people. But he does not He does not uh, simply do this for their comfort. Rather, he says, I'm going to restore you for a special purpose. Jump to verse 13 in Zechariah 8. I will come, it will come about just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel. So I, um, so I will save you that purpose. You may become a blessing. I will save you so that you might become a blessing. That's his intent. Do not fear, again verse 15, do not fear. Now, our reference verse fits in. 16, these are the things which you should do. Speak truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So why is this important? that God's people speak the truth and don't do perjury and judge rightly and all these kinds. That's just religious talk anyways, right? Why is this so important? Jump down to verse 21. The inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. And the other says, I will go too. These are people outside of Israel. Let us go and seek the favor of the Lord. Yeah, I'm going to go too. So many peoples and mighty nations 
will come to seek the Lord of the ho- of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The teaching of Zechariah 8, as referenced in Ephesians 4, as applies here, is we should be a group who without fear speaks the truth to one another, judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates because we are his people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And here it is, folks. And from that, many peoples and mighty nations will come and seek the Lord of hosts and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Do you want to see revival in this in the land in which you live? Do you want to see revival in, dare I say, America? Do you want to see revival in even, dare, dare I say, California? This is God's method. This is God's method. The only way for us to have an impact for the Lord in this godless nation is for, the, is for us to judge for truth and peace among ourselves. That's the message he's telling us. Then people will be drawn to seek God within our midst without the need for marketing and clever entertainment. If we, as a community of believers, partake in the process of purity one with another, God will be glorified and people will seek out Him amongst us. You see, people that are having problems in sin, they don't need to be conned in the church. They know they have a problem. They want to go somewhere where there's solutions. Wrong diagnosis, wrong cure. And when they see us as a community pursuing God, that attracts the person who wants purity and who wants change. We don't need marketing and clever devices. Do you see it? The author's intent is far greater than simply tell each other the truth. Something bigger is going on here. That's called contextualization. That's how we read our Bibles. We put on a new self for the salvation of the nations. But wait, there's more. What gives you the right to speak truth in my life? Again, verse 25, we're back to Ephesians 4. Speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. Here it is, for we are members of one another. You're in church, but is a church in you. For we are members of one another. You can't accomplish this kind of spiritual growth by attending YouTube church. You got to be here. Informal survey, not my notes. Does this grate anybody like, I don't want you guys in my life. I, I, I keep you at the distance I want you at. I'm the only one. Oh, you're right. <laughs> in church, you are part of me and I am part of you. That's what God says. The old covenant was a contract of behavior-based blessing. The new covenant is a covenant of family relationship. The church is not about membership, it's about relationship. The kind of transparent relationships that invite you to help me to do better. And as a member here, I am committed to allowing you to confront me for our good and his glory. But I'll tell you, without commitment, 
I'm not going to confront anybody. Why would I do that? And I, I speak as one who has been called to the pastor's office for that talk. Gunner does that? Yeah. Yeah, about six months ago, Gunner, uh, Pastor Gunner acted on a trend that he was seeing among men in this church. To address this trend, he began a study of the attributes of the godly man uh, with any who wanted to attend, and, and they used a, a, guy, a biblical guidebook called um, The Measure of a Man, Gene Getz, to confront the inconsistencies in the lives of the men in this church. That's what a loving, genuine church does. We address issues in order to help each other put off the old self and to put on the new self. We are members of one another. Now let's be real. What's the most likely response that you're going to get when you poke into somebody's faults? (laughs) Anger? Rejection? And with that in mind, the context fits perfectly with the meaning of the next verse, 426. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. This is not a standalone verse. You cannot preach a sermon on be angry and do not sin. You don't do that. It must be understood in the light of the context of the whole passage. And this is why we took the time to review the contextual flow of Pastor 4, chapter 4. This is what's going on. This is why that verse is there. Now, there's an obvious challenge with this verse in that we apparently are told, be angry, verse 26, and we are told in verse 31 to put away all anger. You can't have it both ways. So what's going on here? It's no accident that among the do-nots that follow in verse 26 or 31, uh, this heads the list. This is the first of the don't be this way. And I submit to you that verse 26 is actually a warning about reacting in anger when someone lovingly corrects you. But we have to dig a little bit to get there. Now, anytime a guy says to you, what it says is not what it says, you should be sitting there like this, like, prove it, buddy, wait a minute. So let's look at this carefully. You see, the grammatical problem with be angry and yet do not sin is that it's written in what's called the imperative tense or mood. That means it's a command. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry, it's a command. You cannot rewrite it different ways to make it feel better. You can't, in honesty, reword it to something like, well, don't sin when you're angry, kind of passive like that. It says what it says. And as written, the phrase is commanding us to be angry. Um, That's problematic only in that in 31 it says, don't be angry. And still, this phrase... Is it possibly in your Bible written in all caps or maybe with a little mark next to it referring to another verse? Where is it directing you to go? Psalm 4.4. Is that important? That's called contextualization, isn't it? Hey, here he goes again, I know. This is not, I submit to you, a command. Rather, it's a quote from the Old Testament. Contextualization tells us that the author is not commanding us to be angry and yet do not sin. Rather, he is telling us 
to go to the teaching of Psalm 4, and we're going to do that. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, all the way back to Psalm 4. Oh, John, this is work, I know. It's real short, though. It's not like Zechariah. Psalm 4. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you, like, like eight verses or so. I'm going to read it first in the NIV, just so it's palatable, and then I'll fix something. Psalm 4, David. For the director of music, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David, answer me when I call you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Selah. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down now and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Okay. Now, every other version, other than the NIV, translate Psalm 4, 4 like this. Not be angry and don't sin, but they translate it, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed. Be still. In Psalm 4, we have David in distress before the first Selah. He states his case, laying in his bed, sleepless, considering how he has been offended. Men have turned his glory into shame. Who here has laid awake in the wee hours of the night with your mind spinning about how you've been wrong. Can you relate? There's got to be an ex-somebody in here. Yeah. Thinking of ways to get them back, maybe? Never know. Okay. And rather than argue his case, David reminds himself of the truths of God, the second Salah. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Yeah. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Rather than being angry, David trembles at the thought of how his anger could result in sin. David knows that such anger can quickly be twisted into sinful behaviors. He reminds himself to meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still, not angry. Be still. Salah. And he concludes that, Thou hast put gladness in my heart. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For thou alone, O Lord, dost make me to dwell in safety. When I'm offended, when I'm brutalized, when my goals are blocked, when I'm angry by that thing, to understand that, wait a minute, God's got this. God's got this is the cure. The teaching of Psalm 4 is not that we should be angry. Rather, that anger is a dangerous thing and that the right response to offense is to trust in God who will make us dwell in safety. And so when somebody says something to you, in the church that kind of grates you a little bit, you can take a step back and think about it instead of blowing up. This then is what the author of Ephesians wants us to consider when we think that we have been confronted unfairly in the church or misunderstood in the church or slandered in the church. Regardless of the offense, your sin, my sin, nobody's sin, 
we can trust God is working all things towards our good and His glory as He brings you through His own training center in the church. Who's been offended in church? Just two of us. Good. Okay. Now, let's touch on it. Anger is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. It is a physiological response to a stimulus. That's all it is. It's a physiological mind and body response to a stimulus. Just like being frightened. It's part of your fight or fight syndrome. It's a gift from God that allows you to spring into action when appropriate and deal with what has to be dealt with. <laughs> I've worked, I spent a career working among warriors, and I know many who have sprung into action when it was time, and then quickly gave the guy a glass of water afterwards. Oh, it's not meanness, it's anger. It can be controlled, it can be mastered. Now, still, some of us have made it a habit of stimulating our anger at the drop of a hat. My dad was a rager. He was a rager, not a ranger, a rager. He used anger to manipulate and to bully. And that's sin. Hence, verse 31 tells us to put away all anger. Now, how do I know if my anger is simply a physiological response or if it's problematic? Well, simple. If it continues past the immediate catalyst event, if it follows you into the night, it's a problem. You might need to go out for a run and get it out of your system. Selah. More accurate to the passage is the person who gets their feelings hurt as something said from the pulpit or some painful truth shared by a friend. And rather than evaluate the merit of the encounter, they go from person to person pointing out the terrible thing that so-and-so said to them. And that kind of behavior gives the devil an opportunity. The opportunity to divide and to neuter the church. And Paul says, stop it, don't do it. In fact, he says to make sure you settle it before the end of the day. So you're not laying in bed all night thinking about it. That kind of fits Psalm 4, doesn't it? Now I can go to sleep. So, what are some areas that we could seek to clean up? Well, Ephesians 4.28. He starts into the do nots. He says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Okay, I am at a loss to tell you why Paul showcased theft over, say, murder. Let him who murders, murder no longer. With that uh, higher on the list, right? It is possible that there was a problem specific to the community of believers that they understood exactly what or who Paul was talking about. That's possible. But still contextually, it fits that as members of one another, we should pursue opportunities and resources to physically bless each other. What scares me in this verse is the implication that if I fail to work to the ability that God has gifted me to work, so that I fail to contribute to the blessing of the body of believers, then I am functionally stealing from the body of believers. Now, I'm still chewing on that, but that's kind of what I'm reading in there. 
I have an obligation to physically participate with you as well and not just be a taker. And we may, and we, we may be seeing the same logic applied in the next verse. Are we encouragers or simply busybodies? Look at verse 429. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, out of context, I would tell you that this is speaking about vulgar speech and bad jokes and inappropriate talk. That's what I tell you. But you see, he's going to address that next week in chapter 5, verse 4. He says that very thing. So why is he saying this here? The unwholesome words here seem to be inappropriate criticism. Hence, it says, but only such a word as is good for the edification of others according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. It's telling us to be careful what we say to each other, to be encouragers. Um, Godly correction is not meant to grieve the hearer, but to build up the body. And this then is a good parenting verse as well. Encourage your kids, not beat them down. And we need to take this all very seriously as the alternative to this is what he calls grieving the Holy Spirit. 430. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, why not grieve the Lord or or grieve God or grieve Jesus? Why grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, recall way back in chapter 1. We're introduced to this, uh, verse, verse 13, chapter 1. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. When you first put your faith in Jesus, he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of you as a pledge, a promise, guaranteeing better things to come. He put it inside of you. It grieves God at the closest level. Not the God way out there, but the God in here, the living inside of you, God, when we both snub his opportunities to put on the new self and when we fail to help others do the same. Our very being, our reality, is that we are no longer the people of the world. Rather, we are people sealed for the day of redemption. I am and you are. We are intimate members of all those who are sealed for redemption. We're supposed to be a family, not a dysfunctional family. To snub your local church, to ignore the message from the pulpit, to flee from church to church every time God starts to help you put off the old self is grievous to the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you. What's frightening is that such behavior eventually silences the Spirit of God. First uh, Thessalonians 5.19, he says this, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies or teachings with contempt. Test everything, hold to what's good. Now, it entirely fits with the rest of the do-nots, are not material sin issues. He's not going to tell us uh, anymore, don't steal, don't cheat, don't, don't, whatever, don't hurt people. That's not the thing. The issue is rather focused on our dealings with one another. Look at verse 431. Let all bitterness and wrath 
and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Again, let me emphasize, these behaviors are primarily aimed at how we deal with the leadership and membership of the local church, as well as participate in the process of putting on the new self. In chapter 5, Paul will address the more public side of different sins like this. He'll tell us, don't be X, Y, and Z on the outside next week. But now he's talking about here in the building with each other. This instruction, chapter 4, is given for members of the family of God. Now, for those who truly want to put off the old self and put on the new, if that's really your desire, if you've come to that point in your life where you want that again and again, we're going to have to throw away our bias against being part of a local church. It's the tool that God has provided to help each of us put on the new self. You can't deny that. You're in the church, but is the church in you? And you know right now, I'm, I'm, you can feel yourself. like You know who you are. It's like, I, I don't want that. I was really blessed last uh, Donut Sunday. When I met a guy outside who said to me, introduced himself, and said, hey, I, I don't come out here because I'm trying to avoid donuts. But Pastor Gunner said, it's not about the donuts, it's about the people. So I'm here. Small thing? It's kind of a big thing. Getting involved in the lives of one another is what makes this all work. From my participation in Gunner's um, measure of a man study, I've connected with men in this church who want to deal with their uh, potential drinking problems, with their weight issues, and their treatment of their wives as they enter their 20, 30, and 40-year marriage mark. Cool. I've met men just like me. Who would have thought? Here at Grace Point, we are real people with real problems who follow a God with real solutions. You are welcome to join us on this journey. Okay. Like James says, the so what? So what? What do we do with all this? That means he's finishing. I know. Yeah. (laughs) First thing, what hinders you from stepping more deeply into the lives of other people in this church? What causes you to resist that a little bit? What's in the way? Might be practical, might be busy. But maybe is it an attitude of, I I don't want you in my life? That close? That's, That's danger close. Danger close. Women of experience. You know who you are? Are you fulfilling your biblically mandated role of mentoring young mommies and young wives? Titus 2.3 says this, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, 
to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And this is the intent of Ephesians 4, folks. This is, no doubt. Oh, I can say that one again. But the problem is, the problem is you do understand it. That's the problem. Could I, could I have planned that? <laughs> Let's just go to donuts. <laughs> this is the intent of chapter four. And this is not possible without intentionality. So are you, women of experience, are you intentionally looking for specific young women to intentionally encourage through the struggles that you know are on the horizon for them? That's something you can do. These lessons are so much more powerful when they're presented not by Pastor Gunner, but by you women of experience who have already walked in their shoes. Where are my mentoring men? Will you pray, mentoring men, this week, that you may identify specific young men, young husbands, young daddies, so that you can build relationships that allow you to interject a word of encouragement or a word of correction or even a word of reproof when the time comes? It's so much better if the relationship is there before the issue comes up. And most important, how will you embrace the truth that you are members of one another? You belong to me. I belong to you, it says. Even though every fiber of your individualism kicks against this idea. We're a proud people. Okay. This is God's means of putting off the old and putting on the new. How badly do you want it? How badly do you want it? That's really the only issue. Do you want it? Because if you want it, if you want to submit and commit to the Word of God today, we're going to have to be involved in each other's lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. This may not be the um, status quo read of Ephesians 4, but that's what's there, Lord God. And from this day forward, and certainly as in the past, we love this church, that it is a church that really is involved in each other's lives. Maybe it's the benefit of being small, I don't know. But Lord, you know the person here who you've been talking to their heart saying, I don't want those people in my life. You know. You're not fooled. But Father, uh, for those of us who have tried to put on the new self and have fallen on our face time and time again, help us to embrace these people here, your gems, your diamonds in the rough, to help each of us be empowered to do what's right for you. And then, Lord God, referring back to the uh, Zechariah passage, then when people see that in us, they'll be drawn to us as they pursue you. (laughs) No clever shows, no gimmicks. Oh, Father, we do pray for that little baby today. Encourage those young parents. In Jesus' name, amen.